Do you want to start a thriving real estate career, but don't know where and how to start? Do you want to become a successful realtor or investor, but lack the required knowledge and skills? Gear yourself up with the best and actionable advice here on The Real Estate Rundown. Tune in as Shannon Robnett talks with industry veterans about all kinds of asset classes, market trends, challenges, management techniques, and success stories. Listen to informative discussions with valuable tips that will serve as the foundation for your incredible real estate venture. Now, here's your host, Shannon Robnett. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Real Estate Rundown. Today I've got the privilege of interviewing a friend of mine. You know, it's funny, you get to know people in the business, but you never really understand their story until you get to meet guys like Chad Zadezik, who have really come from a background. And, and every time I talk to this guy, there's another facet of him that I find to be amazing uh, from his movie career to you know what he's doing in the past, what he's doing in the present, how he's uh, the family that he's raising. But Chad, I want to welcome you to the show and I can't wait to get into the details with you. Yeah, sounds good, Shannon. Super excited to be on here. I think you're one of the few guys that actually has more kids than me. So I'm not <laughs> sure how much time we'll spend on that one, but you yeah. definitely got me beat there. There you go. Well, so Chad, kind of give us a little bit of a rundown on where you started in real estate and uh, where where life's taken you and uh, what what you're your W-2 or your entrepreneurial role, uh, what part of that was played into that whole deal? Sure. So, yeah, I definitely have had a meandering path. And um, I'll give you the, the nickel tour on that. So, so technically, I started out as a, a rocket scientist working as a uh, structural dynamics engineer for Rocketdyne on the uh, space shuttle main engines and did that for, for seven years before um, starting a, a business with my brother, in, uh, which was a lighting business. And uh, did that, started basically from nothing uh, while I was getting my MBA, I used his company as kind of a pet project. He recruited me over to be a, a partner with him and help grow and scale that business. Uh, we grew that to be um, employed about 75 people and have three different warehouses uh, in about 15 years. And then he bought me out of that business in 2018, and I went into real estate full-time. Uh, I like to say going back to real estate because I was in construction management and structural engineering before that, uh, but went back into real estate as an investor and a syndicator in 2018 in, uh, in multifamily, primarily here in Southern California where, where I live, and then eventually started doing bigger deals out of state. Uh, in the multifamily space and now self storage space. So, Chad, let's let's talk about that a little bit. You know, you've you, you've done some multifamily, you've done uh, some industrial stuff, you've done uh, some mini storage. Why are you involved in so many different types of deals? <laughs> uh, well, I, I think I think diversity is pretty important, uh, especially you know, in the dynamic market that, that we're in, we're, we're filming this in April, 2023 is certainly a, a dynamic time to be involved in real estate. A lot of unknowns with interest rates, with what the Fed is going to do with, with what, um, you know, the banking industry, uh, what's going on in the banking industry. So, so there's a lot of issues right now. 
Um, and I think it's good to be diversified. I, I love real estate. So that that's really where the bulk of my investments in time and, and money are. Um, but you can diversify quite a bit within real estate, which is pretty attractive. And I know you've done a fair amount of that as well. So yeah, I, listen, I, I was going to say that's a loaded question, man, because I'm I'm in I'm very diversified. But, you know, I think we can all agree that multifamily has been quite a bit oversold. You know, it's uh, it's the only asset class that I'm currently seeing uh, where cap rates are below interest rates. Right. It's actually trading at between a four and a half and a five and a half, depending on the market you're in on interest rates at six. Right. And and it's just boggling my mind that people keep piling in lemming after lemming after lemming on deals that uh, that are, are in this negative position. You know, we've got a ton of this stuff that's going to come up for renewal on uh, a rewrite on the bridge debt or whatever whatever else they had going on. And currently, we're 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 sitting on a lack of inventory, which keeps driving stuff. Right. So so there's this there's this angst in the market about what are we going to do? How are we going to do it? But yet there's so much that is still trading, you know? Uh, and, you know, when you hear guys like Ken McElroy, who, you know, $2 billion portfolio bought one deal last year, you wonder what everybody else sees in the market, you know? So I can understand the pivot. And I was really setting you up for that because I knew, I knew you knew the answer, but you know, there's that pivot in the market where you've got to go to multiple classes to see, what else there is, and real estate still has intrinsic value. It's still an asset in and of itself. You're just using maybe a different model or a different, you know, a different avenue. Uh, tell me why you why you looking at, why you're looking at self storage favorably in this market. Sure. So so as part of my diversification strategy is self storage. And if you look back at uh, 20, uh, 2008, 2010, Self-storage was actually one of the best performing real estate asset classes out there. And it did really well during the 08 recession. It, it barely felt felt a bump. So for, for your listeners who are worried about where the economy might be headed or, you know, are we really headed? Are we in a recession? You know, it depends on how you qualify it these days. But oh. certainly if you're worried about a recession... And if you think that history tends to rhyme, maybe not repeat, but at least rhyme, then that would lead you to self-storage because it did really well in 08. So right now I, I'm working on a big deal in Texas in self-storage, 2,600 units. And, uh, and I'm excited about that part of the market. Um, so self-storage for me is a big part of the diversification play that I'm doing right now. You know, and I agree with you. You know, I built several mini storage projects. Uh, I've, I've seen where you know, a lot of markets get kind of saturated with owner users or not owner users, but owner operators. Uh, even with the number of kids we have, we don't need 2,600 units, but you know, there's a lot of people out there that, that, you know, they want to, they want this for their retirement. And so they do what they have in their retirement. Uh, you know, they, they slow down, they get a mini storage, they operate that, that provides them with cash flow. But you know, that new, that, that new thought process of, hey, you know what, these could be automated, these can be, you know, run remotely, there's a lot of, of automation that that goes into that. When you're looking at buying 2,600 units, what is your business plan moving forward to obviously bring more value to them, and thereby bringing more value to your investors? 
Sure. So if you, if you look at, uh, like I said, 08 and how well self-storage did during that recession, that, that's one big positive. The other big positive is looking for where, where you might be able to provide value on certain properties. And if you look at the multifamily space, it's something like 90% owned by institutional owners at this point, which was not the case even 10 years ago. If you look at self-storage, only 25% of the market is owned by institutional owners. So, so 75% of the owners are you know, mom and pop, smaller operators that um, have had these properties for a long period of time. And for better or for worse, they're just run inefficiently at this point, right? There's a lot of technology that you can add into these properties. Uh, there's a lot of efficiencies that can be created if you take an institutional type approach and incorporate some of these technologies and improvements into these mom and pop run properties. And so that's what we're doing. And there just happens to be a lot of low hanging fruit right now in this self-storage space because it's not overrun by institutional quality, you know, high professional operator uh, investors at this point. So, but is that part of your plan is to gather this, these units up, uh, get them running better, uh, and then exit to an institutional buyer, or are you guys planning a long-term hold on this? So that really depends on where the interest rates are at in five years. So we've, we secured five-year fixed rate debt on this particular project we're talking about. And, and depending on where interest rates are at is going to dictate what our exit, exit is. We do have multiple options at an exit. Uh, ideally, if, if interest rates do come down, and we create the value with, that we think we can create, we would refinance, return 100% of investors' equity, and hang on to the properties for passive income, creating what, what Ken McElroy, as you mentioned earlier, would be called infinite returns. That would be like plan A. If we can't do that, then we would, we would most likely exit, um, maybe refinance, but that would probably be plan C. So we've got a few different options on how we would exit the, exit the, the uh, project, which I think is really important when you're, when you're getting into a deal. It's good to have a lot of options on the exit. And, and those are some of the ones that we're looking at. Yeah, you know, speaking of exits, you know, a lot of people right now are winding up in trouble because they got three-year, five-year debt. Uh, and here they are three years, four years, five years down the road, and it's not a favorable time to sell. Um, what, what about that is, how, how are you guys safeguarding yourselves from that when you're looking at, okay, we're taking on five-year debt, we're going, we're still in a climbing interest rate environment. Uh, we know that the Fed is going to continue for at least the short duration, but could it be as long as what happened in the late 70s, early 80s? What, what, is, the, what is the thought process behind that opportunity to exit on really just a five-year debt? I, I think the farther out you look, the more important it is to look at the macroeconomic side of things. And certainly, we can look back to the late 70s, early 80s to see what, how we dealt with the high inflationary environment as a country back then. And I think the major difference between then and now is when we had you know, interest rates at 18, 19%, that was when our national debt payments were, were 25% of GDP, right? Which is manageable. GDP was much above what those uh, interest rate, uh, what the debt was. Today, we're at 125% of uh, of the debt 
uh, of our G our debt is 125% of the GDP, right? That that's a big right. shift. Yeah. So the US cannot sustain uh high interest rates for a very long time. Um as of the recording of this, our our interest rate payments are a trillion dollars a year just to service the debt that we have. That's a completely different environment than we had in the 70s and 80s and I think that's going to dictate uh, monetary policy going forward at the at the macro level that we we just we can't we can't get back up to 18%. We would literally collapse our economy. So if you, if you subscribe to that then then you and you're looking out 5 years, you might be asking yourself, okay, where might we 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 be? Personally, I don't think we're going to be anywhere near those interest rates. I think we're going to have to have lower interest rates. And if we didn't have interest rates, we got a lot bigger problems than than having a, to sell a property, at, yeah. uh, you know, five cap or seven cap or whatever. But, it might but be. let's run down that rabbit hole, uh, Chad, since you opened up the uh, the hole here. So so we're in a position. You're right, where you know we are the one that sets interest rates worldwide because we are the default currency, or at least we were. That's rapidly changing. We we've got Russia doing deals with uh India. Uh, you know, the the that's the largest economy, the growing economy in the world. It's the only one that's still on the upside, both uh in growth of 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 GDP and uh population. And yet you've got, you know, you've got China and BRICS and all that kind of stuff going on. We will we could very easily lose our foothold as the world currency if that happens. What do you think we're going to have as far as the ability to set interest rate policy, which is something that the U.S. has kind of been at the center of with the world banks and and you know IMF and and even the Federal Reserve has has done that because we have been that reserve currency. But if we lose that status, what do you think is going to happen? Well, that, I think that's a major, major risk that the U.S. faces right now. And, and I agree 100%. We're starting to see the erosion of the power of the U.S. dollar as the world reserve currency. Um, I tend to believe it's going to be more of a, a death by a thousand cuts, you know, these kind of side deals that these countries are making, rather than just, you know, just flip the switch off and move to a gold standard or central bank standard or something like that, or, you know, the Chinese yuan taking over. Like, I don't think it's going to be a, a flip the switch. I think it's going to be death by a thousand cuts and having less and less influence on the, on the world stage. That being said, if I'm able to put my money into a fixed asset that produces cash on fixed debt, I think that's a good, that's a good investment regardless of what happens on the world stage. So that's what we're trying to do, which, by the way, is not what everyone's doing. Some people say, hey, get into variable debt now because the interest rates are going to be forced to come down and you'll float it on the way down. Like some people think that. Uh, yeah. The only floaters we're finding in that economic pool are the <laughs> ones that are face down trying to breathe, you know, yeah. and, and, you know, I mean, I, I completely agree with you and, you know, we both subscribe to the same thought process here. Your three bedroom, two bath house did not change. It did not morph and grow a third, uh, a third bathroom. It did not add a second floor, but if you really look at it, you know, I remember a, a, a time that my dad, had a conversation with my son who was 16 at the time and had got his first job and he was making 725 an hour and he was pretty ecstatic as you can imagine a young man would be and he he and my father sat down and compared when my dad got a job in his very first job in 68 1968 just to be clear mm -hmm. uh 
he was making $3.20 an hour washing dishes at an Italian restaurant. My son was making $7.25 and my son went on to say, man, I'm making twice as much as you. But then I asked the question, but what could you buy? My dad could buy 11 gallons of gas, right? 30 cents a gallon, he could get 11 gallons of gas. My son at the time, 2010, two, you know? Mm -hmm. And so when we look at that, whether we're using 18% interest, whether we're using this, the biggest hedge against that inflation, which inflation is, is, is theft of the poor, theft of the working class, the best hedge against that is to get into something that is servicing its own debt, putting off some cash, but is also something that will translate back into dollars. You know, we keep coming back to this currency because that's all we know, because we quit trading seashells and ox wheels and, and all these other things that we used to do thousands of years ago for something. So we got to this common currency called the U.S. dollar. But when you when you look at it, if interest rates go to 18 percent, you've got fixed debt. If if inflation gets out of control, you've got an asset. So people are willing to trade the wheelbarrow full of money so you'll get more dollars coming back out, thereby protecting yourself because your debt didn't increase. You have that fixed debt. So it's a very solid game plan. And I really agree with what you're doing there. I'm just asking, you know, some of those questions because a lot of people are still wondering, well, shouldn't I, isn't now a good time to be in cash? Isn't now, you know, shouldn't I liquefy some of my assets that have liabilities attached to them as far as bank debt and get into a place where I can be more liquid so I've got dollars? And the argument you seem to be making that I completely agree with is you need to be asset rich right now because the asset has something of intrinsic value that would continue to go up regardless of what happens with the rest of the world and what happens with monetary policy. Yeah, hundred percent. Look, I think your dad's story and your son's story is a really good example of really what's happening to purchasing power, right? Because that's really what we're talking about where the rubber meets the road and strength of the dollar, where it meets wall street is what's your purchasing power. And the reason why the Fed is so aggressive on fighting this inflation beast is because they know that is one of the worst things for, for the US is losing its purchasing power. And that's been happening over time. And the Fed is okay with that at a rate of maybe 2% per year. But when we're you know at 8% plus per year, 16%, if you go by the original CPI standards, that is a big erosion of purchasing power. So for me, I like to put that idle cash. Like, I disagree. I don't want to sit in cash right now. I'd rather put that cash into a, a, a cash producing asset that, by the way, when inflation continues to increase, so do my rents or right. so does my storage costs, right? Those are going right. up with inflation and so is my cash flow. So at least I can keep up with inflation at that point. And I don't have an erosion of my purchasing power because I'm already sitting on, a, on an asset, a cash producing asset. Well, you know, the other thing too, back to your self-storage strategy, you know, aren't rents in self-storage month to month? Yep. So you have the most dynamic ability to adjust rents as any, I mean, of any asset, because yep. I mean, in industrial, you're looking at three to five year leases. Uh, in multifamily, you're doing one year leases. Uh, so when you get into get into an asset class like mini storage, uh, you're doing one month leases. So, you know, if you're not out by the or if you're not paid by the fifth, you're locked out by the 10th, you're auctioned by the 25th or whatever the case may be. Right. I mean, you're bada boom, bada bing. You're out 
But as things deteriorate, if we wind up in a banana republic like Venezuela, where all of a sudden we've got 4,000% inflation, uh, you're going to be the only guy that's going to be keeping up with the Joneses uh, as far as, you know, $9,000 a month for mini storage rent. And I like that number, by the way. I mean, that, that'd be fantastic, right? We got a 10 by 10, but it's nine grand a month. So, you know, Chad, let's talk about a little bit about why you've chosen real estate as your journey. I mean, look, you're a rocket scientist. I mean, I really actually know, actually, you're the second rocket scientist I know, but you know, it's it, it's not the rocket scientist's fault that the, that they know me, right? But but when you've got this this ability to do whatever you want, I mean, you've you've been in a couple of documentaries, you've been in, you know, you've been on some uh, you know, some some movies. You, you've, you're a rocket scientist. You've, you've had an engineering firm. Why did you reti- retire from a job to go into real estate? Help me understand that. Yeah, so that's a good question. I, and I have done quite a few different careers, as you mentioned there. And I'll tell you, I, I think I finally settled in on the golden goose here, primarily for, for two reasons. One is the, the advantage that you get with leverage with respect to real estate. You literally can borrow a lot of money to buy real estate. And you can't do that to buy stocks. Like you're not going to get a loan to buy stocks. You're not going to get a loan to buy bonds, right? You, you, you might get a loan to buy a business, but that's a, a totally different loan. So, so the lending that you have to buy real estate is really advantageous. The other thing you have is the tax advantages with respect to real estate, where you could shield a lot of your income through different strategies within real estate. So the more, as we know, the more money you can keep, the, the more money, the wealthier you're going to be. Yeah. So within real estate, you're able to shield a lot of that from taxes, which is why 90% of the world's millionaires have some form of their income from, coming from real estate. So, so for me, out of all the different things I've done, uh, real estate, when you check those two big boxes, is, is a really great place to be. And that's why this will probably be my last stop. I'm happy to end up here. Well, and you know, when you get into the place where you can create recurring income uh, while leveraging other people's money, do the job once, borrow other people's money to backfill uh, a majority of the outlay, lock in, uh, you know, a, basically it's a forward purchase, right? They've stepped in as a bank, they're taking their position. All you got to do is keep making the payments for the next 10 or 20 years. Your asset's going to be free and clear. You're going to wind up in a situation where you're getting residual income. You've got tax benefits. I mean, all those things play a huge role. Uh, and and it's you know when when you did your job as an engineer, you did the engineering once and you got paid well just once. You know, it wasn't a situation where you did the engineering once and you got paid again and again and again. So you know, a lot of people can understand how that plays out and that makes for a great career change because you can do that and not have to be the guy on site every day. You're not, you know, even in your entrepreneurial business, when you had the, the business with your brother, how many employees did you have? 75. So you had the ability to leverage yourself kind of like bank leverage, but you know, with an attitude, you know, he had Larry over in cubicle seven, that was just not the guy. Right. But you always had that, that stuff going on where you could leverage, but the minute you stop driving the company, the minute you stop bringing in new jobs, so the income, but the overhead didn't. Right. And, and while you step into assets like real estate, you can definitely see where the income keeps coming in just because the asset is there. Even if the asset is completely static and doesn't, do anything 
because people are using it. You know, I love what Robert Kiyosaki says about having other people pay for your things and taking that to the level that real estate does is really an exceptional uh, end route around having to work, uh, you know, forever and always. And uh, so I, I definitely agree with you on that. Where do you see, uh, Chad, you guys are closing on your, your mini storage deal here shortly. You're going to be done with that very soon. Uh, but where do you see the the next deal for you? And, and how are you sourcing your deals in the market that's as tumultuous as the one we are in? Yeah, so that's a good question. Uh, for me, a big part of it is, is partnering with other people. Because like I said, I'm doing out-of-state deals right now. I'm not the guy with the boots on the ground. So it's really important to establish relationships, get to know these other partners, leverage their expertise in the given markets to find out where are the good places to invest, what are the you know good sides of the street to buy in, those sort of things, which, which are really important details on a successful real estate deal. So I, I, I invest a lot of my time into these relationships and getting to know people and partnering with other people that have a, a complementary skill set than I do. Yeah, well, and you know that's the the funny thing uh, that you that I, I've seen a lot of here in the real estate game is that you've got a lot of people that are able to put four and five and six people together that all have a specialty that all come together with one common cause and are able to take down deals, make deals happen, uh, really change the 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 trajectory of it because you've got a specialist in every area. You've got somebody that's a specialist on the on the finance side. You've got another uh, specialist on the operation side. You know, maybe you've got uh, somebody out there that's that's on the acquisition team that's scouting markets and turning over rocks like uh, you know, like nobody's business. And then and then you've got the the capital raise portion of it. Why why is it? I mean, I, I tend to see that you stay in the capital raise side of things. What what is it about that, that that's your superpower? Yeah, and, and I have more recently been in the capital raising side of it. Uh, however, I don't I don't really think that is my superpower. I think it's just kind of what I'm doing right now. Ultimately, I'd like to be more on the the entrepreneurial operator side. Um, my first deals I did, I was the solo GP, so I didn't I did not bring any on any partners. I was the I was the only guy. I did everything from A to Z, and uh, and ran my own deals. Uh, more recently on these larger deals, I've been more on the capital raising side just because that's been kind of the need in the market. But but ultimately, I'm really looking to to partner with other people to create a business and get, you know, really kind of leverage my entrepreneurial roots. I've, I've started six different companies um, over my years, and that's really like what I think my superpower is, is growing and running a business. And I want to do that within the real estate space. So, you know, ultimately, I think I still will be doing some level of capital raising, but certainly um, that's not that's not my only strength. And ultimately, I want to do a bit more than that. Yeah, you know, and, and that's the, the amazing thing about real estate. You know, there's so many facets to it. There's always more to learn. There's always more to do. There's always, uh, you know, another deal to do. You know, I somebody asked me the other day, uh, where do, you know, when, when are you going to quit? You know, when am I, when I, when am I going to stop doing deals? And I told him, I said, you know what? I hope I die with an LOI in my pocket. <laughs> I, I really do, you know, because there's no reason to stop doing deals. It's not like I'm out here digging a ditch, you know? Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I'm, 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 I watch it, 
you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by other people digging ditches, right? But but that's not, you know, nobody, no anybody that knows me knows that I'm not going to stroke out on a job site, right? But but you do have that ability to then look at it and go, wow, this is this is an opportunity for me to grow, for me to bring a different skill set and everything like that. You know, as we look at what's going on in 2023 with, uh, you know, the the dollar changing and all those things, um, where are you seeing pricing going? And in, 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 you know, we get a we get this question a lot, but but isn't real estate isn't now a bad time to buy real estate? Isn't real estate uh, isn't aren't prices dropping in real estate? What's your answer to that question? You know, I, look, I get really really frustrated by this this perspective from investors. Right? They don't they want to be on the sidelines right now. I want to stay in cash. I'm going to wait. Blah blah blah. It's like when when you're when you, when you got a 4th of July sale for a car, you buy a car, you know, like when the pot roast is on sale at the market, you buy a little bit more of the steaks in the market, right? Like, like every, when everything else goes on sale, you buy. When real estate's on sale, you sit on the sidelines. Like why, why do people do that? I just got a $4 million discount on this deal, which by the way, is uh, got appraised $2.5 million higher than what we're buying at. So we got a $4 million discount and people want to be on the sidelines because they're worried about it being on sale. Like, like Warren Buffett would totally disagree, right? When there's blood in the streets, be greedy, right? We know that saying, but, but it just doesn't resonate with investors for whatever reason. They want to sit on the sidelines. Meanwhile, the people that are actually doing deals, we're getting massive discounts that we would never have gotten a year from now. And in my opinion, we're not going to get a year later, right? We, yeah. I'm sorry, we got them a year a year ago. We would not have gotten them, and we're right. not going to get it a year from now. So this is like the sweet time to get some of these amazing deals, get really good discounts. Real estate's on sale. Buy, yeah. buy, buy. You want you want to marry the deal, and you want to date the debt. I'll pay high debt right now because I know I can refinance it later if I need to, right? As long as it's right. fixed, I do fixed debt. So. Yeah. So, so I've got that advantage right now. And for me, I'm, I'm picking up these deals right now. I'm super aggressive on it and excited because I'm getting a lot of retrades. I'm getting a lot of discounts. And, and you know this as good as anybody. You know, a year ago, we were doing best and final offers, right? Like, right. okay, right. I'll, give you, I'll give you another, you know, 500K above asking because I really want yeah. the deal, right? right? I mean, that was the environment. It was just how deep just can you cut ago. yourself? You know, how, how, yeah. how, how much, how much can I get out of you? Okay. Look, I, I, I've only got one <laughs> kidney left. I can't give you two kidneys, you know, yeah. uh, I got to keep one of them. And now we're on, we're on the flip side of the coin right now. We're getting discounts from buyers. We're getting concessions. We're getting amazing deals right now. And yet you still have a lot of investors that aren't comfortable right now. And they're sitting on the sidelines. And those are, those are the lemmings that are going to be paying for the high increases a year from now. When the people that understand about blood being in the streets, they're the ones that are actively buying, and that's what I'm doing. Well, and you know, it's it they're the same people that got into Tesla at 800 that went to 900, you know, and now they can't understand why it's fallen all the way back down. But you know, the thing that I look at too, Chad, is if the deal will cash flow from the beginning, if the deal makes sense today, if you don't need, I loved how you said it. You know, look, our plan A is that you know we hold this, we get some better debt later. But we have other plans because the reality is if your deal can go the distance today, it can spit off cash right now today, give that to the investors, everybody wins. What's wrong with that deal, 
right? Yeah. I mean, you can do that deal. You've got five years, four deal. and a half years before you need to do anything with that deal. And in, at that time, you have choices where a lot of people are looking at it going, well, you know what? Prices are falling. And, you know, it's funny because we look at statistically, uh, looked at the MLS numbers around where I'm at in Boise, Idaho, and we have a 1.9 month supply of housing. Now, that statistically tells you that we're low on inventory. The thing is, when you dig in deeper on that, anything under half a million bucks, three bedroom, two bath, four bedroom, three bath, whatever, anything under half a million bucks is still in a multiple offer situation. It's the stuff that's half a million and over, the bigger stuff, the larger houses, the, the million and a half dollar places, where those are the people that could potentially lose their Silicon Valley job or whatever going on like that. They're the ones that are kind of holding off. But you're seeing that of that 1.9 month supply of inventory, 68% of that inventory is houses over 4,000 or over 3,000 square feet, right? So a little bit more than your starter family home. And those are the ones that are that are taking 1.9 months to sell even in this market, right? Mm -hmm. So when you look at that, I mean, your, your analogy of, of when to buy and when to do it is exactly right because we still have people that are looking at it going, man, now is a great time to buy a new single family home. It's a great time to invest in real estate as long as the deal is cash flowing because we're not dealing with 2.4% interest rate and appreciation for days. And we've got, we've got some issues that are real life issues like they've been for most of your investing career, most of my investing career, that this 2% interest rate wasn't real. And we were always going to get back to these. We were always going to come to the day that we sat here and went, yeah, that's 7%. I don't know what else you want. But then again, the other side is I'm looking at acquiring some industrial stuff that's a seven and a half cap. I'm actually going to make money, right? I'm still in the arbitrage situation. Instead of buying that thing at a five and a half cap, I'm buying it at a seven and a half cap, which again, reduces price. I might be paying a little bit more for the interest rate. Again, like you said, I can refi, I can do that later, or it cash flows right now, but the heat is out of the market. So instead of the, the realtors going, hey, you know, I'm actually getting pricing on stuff, right? You remember, remember Chad, we weren't getting pricing uh, 18 months ago. It was you know, uh, send in your offer, you know, call for offers. Guidance mm -hmm. tells us, you know what guidance was? Guidance was the guy that got closest to the cliff. We just hand him the bucket of rocks as he went over, <laughs> right? You know, yeah. that's the guy that paid the most, you know, yeah. and you never wanted to be that guy. But here we are, we got prices back on things again. We've got deals that make sense. We've got due diligences that are back in place. We've got timelines that manage, you know, and you look at guys that have been doing this for years and they we didn't get caught up in the hubbub of everything in the middle. There was a lot of deals that still got done in 20, 21, 22, that even with the froth and the foam, but we're back in a place where real estate is being done based on numbers and common sense and things like that. And we've got decent, we still have decent debt. I mean, you know, I was talking to somebody the other day and they were talking about uh, what interest rates are in Peru. They're like 30%. You can't afford to finance in Peru at 30%. Yeah. You wouldn't think. But then again, the deal would probably reflect that. So, yeah. you know, when, when we're looking at how deals keep going, my camera's spazzing out. When we're looking at how deals keep going, I mean, it, it comes down to the fundamentals, right? It comes down to the fundamentals of how you underwrite it, how you're taking it down, how you're communicating with your seller about your price, my terms, you know, what that looks like, getting things across the finish line. 
I still think there's going to be a robust real estate market for the next two or three years, don't you? Yeah. I mean, look, I, I subscribe to the idea that that real estate is the best get rich slowly scheme out there, right? <laughs> I mean, whether whether you bought last year or this year, in 10 years, it's really not going to matter. So, uh, you know, debt debt is a big question mark. You got you to gotta watch your debt, but I think you and I are both smart enough to do that. But going back to your idea on, on where we are historically, a 7% debt is like 40-year average, right? It's yeah. like, it's not bad debt. No. And uh, if you have a cash-producing asset at that fixed-term debt, that's a win. Yeah. yeah. That's a win. No, and I completely agree with you. you and I, like, like you're the value add king, right? You're a development guy. So right. but guys like you and I that are creating value, like long term, that's a that's a win-win. There, there's no way around it. We, you know, we're, we're gonna be winners on that. Well, and especially when you're coming in, you know, you're taking a an asset that's maybe not managed to the potential, it's not got the add-ons, it's not got the automation, and you bring that technology to it, you know, you're coming up showing up actually doing something. You know, the last year and a half, all you had to do was buy the asset, hold your breath for 90, 90 days, and you were able to make money on it. You know, mm -hmm. now you're actually having to bring value to it. And there's a lot of people that don't understand you got to bring value. Yeah. So they don't understand how to underwrite that value, how to bring that value. So, you know, Chad, when you're looking at these out-of-state deals, and I know you've got a partnership group are you are you jumping in alongside the guys that are operating and seeing how they're doing it? Are you are you just are are you just trusting that they're doing it? How are you double checking your partners in in situations like this? So I, I think it depends on the partnership. So um, and like I said, I've done everything from A to Z. So I, I'm kind of a chameleon in terms of what the partnership actually needs. Uh, certainly, you always have to do kind of the sanity checks and keep an eye on things, but. I like to do quite a bit more than that as, as long as the, the GP team can use my help and oftentimes they can. So I, I tend to get really involved in the value add side of things. Um, as you know, I'm also a licensed general contractor. Uh, so the, the value add um, aspect of it with respect to construction, I'm pretty active in. And then on the asset management side, also very active in depending on the deal. Sometimes you've got a, a really good GP team and frankly, they don't need my help on that part of it. And that's okay. They don't, they don't need my help there, but on other teams, um, when they do need my help, I'm happy to step in and, and I do fair, a fair amount of work in that regard. Awesome. Well, you know, let's, let's kind of wind this down on a, on a personal note. Tell us a little bit more about, I've, I've alluded to it several times, your, your, your acting career. Tell us a little bit about what you've done in that space. Yeah, so I, I started out just happenstance. So I, I do live in Los Angeles, but that's not really, I guess that's not where I, I came from with respect to TV hosting and TV work. But um, I they I was uh, auditioned for a, a gig as an engineering expert on a show. And this was only like maybe 12 years ago now. But um, I auditioned for the job, um, just was referred to it from... Um, from some professors at my uh, undergraduate uh, institution, Loyola Marymount University, applied, got it for that episode, and they wound up keeping me on for each episode. And then the uh, they wound up doing a second season and made me more like a co-host. And then that production company did another show and they brought me on to co-host another show. And then I wound up getting a Hollywood agent to help re re represent me for different things. And uh, it just kind of grew from there. And, uh, and the last gig I did, I, I think you saw the episode, it was on the Smithsonian Channel and National Geographic called Inside Mighty Machines. 
And um, we did, uh, those were one hour episodes. I was the, the solo host on that show, um, just diving into giant machines to find out how they worked and, and working with the contractors and demolition experts, um, which was a, a really cool show. And yeah. uh, so that was the last one I did. So just, I've always kind of done it on the side, um, but I've gotten to see some really amazing things, amazing experiences, and it, it's been a fun uh, side hustle. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's good work if you can get it right. Obviously, I got a face made for radio, but uh, we still do these podcasts. So, <laughs> so uh, Chad, tell everybody where they can grab uh, more information about what you're doing and catch up with you. Sure. So, uh, yeah, our website's a good spot, CSQ, like challenge status quo properties.com or any uh, social media sites is just at CSQ properties. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Chad, for being on the Real Estate Rundown. And guys, thanks for tuning in. As always, like, subscribe where you get your podcast. Let us know what you think. And uh, we'll catch you guys next time on the next episode of the Real Estate Rundown. That's a wrap for today's episode of the Real Estate Rundown. Let these newfound strategies pave the way to start a successful career or a profound rebranding. If you loved everything you have heard, listen to more conversations at www.shannonrobnett.com. And be sure to leave a rating, share it with your friends, and subscribe. Until the next episode.